0: What is going on, people? Welcome back to another special episode of the Uncenter Critic Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me again for another episode with another very, very special guest. And of course, it's another one from the GSA group, with and it's Andrew Davidson. And let's take a little moment to introduce Andrew. Andrew is an Australian theatre practitioner and musician. He is a teaching fellow in acting and musical theatre at the Guildford School of Acting and is GSA's wellbeing champion. Andrew is a graduate of Australia's National Institute of Dramatic Art, NIDA, and has directed plays, operas, musicals and cabaret. He studied composition at the University of Sydney and has written scores for drama, musical theatre and dance. As Head of Dramatic Art at, at the Australian Institute of Music, Andrew established the Bachelor of Performance degree. As a music educator, he is, qual- he is a qualified teacher of Dalcro's Eurythmics and Kodaly Musicianship. I've probably pronounced that wrong, so do forgive me. Uh, as a freelance musician, Andrew also plays piano for ballet and contemporary dance. As a researcher, he has presented at conferences and workshops internationally. He is the programme leader on the Bachelor of Honours Theatre programme, as well as well-being champion for GSA. His qualifications include Master of Music from Longley College School of Bard College from Cambridge, Massachusetts, Postgraduate Diploma of Dramatic Arts from the National Institute of Dramatic Arts, Sydney. Postgraduate Diploma in Music from uh, University of Sydney. Bachelor of Arts from University of New South Wales, Sydney. And Bachelor of Music First Class Honours from the University of South Wales, Sydney. Uh, His affiliations and memberships including, he's a fellow at the Royal Society for the Arts and a member of Stage Directors UK. Uh, Throughout his career, he's been involved in many projects, including work on plays such as All My Sons, Everybody's talking about Jamie, Feather on the Roof, The Glass. I've, I, 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 how do you say that word again, Andrew? I know we just talked about that. The one, the menagerie. The Glass menagerie, menagerie. I had it in my head. It has gone. Uh, head of Gabala, The Heidi Chronicles, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Rabbit Hole, uh, The Taming of the Shrew and the Women of Troy. As Head of Dramatic Arts at the Australian Institute of Music, he co-wrote and led the Bachelor of Performance degree programme. He taught modules in performance skills, performance practice and contextual studies. He directed uh, productions including Before and After, The Laramie Project, The Lessons Dangereux, On the Razzle, Playhouse Creatures, Women of Troy and The Who's Tommy. And by last but by no means least, he has two publications out. One is called Konstantin Stanislavski and Emil Jacques Delcroze: Del historical and Pedagogical connections between act training and, Mu- and music education, and the cycle of creativity, a case study of the working relationship between a dance teacher and a dance musician in a ballet class, both published in 2011. So go and get your copies now. So my goodness, what a wealth of stuff you have under your belt, my friend. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Olly. Uh, good to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Oh, I mean, that's that, that's an incredible set of stuff that you've that you've done. I mean, uh, I still haven't heard you play the piano yet. You still owe me and my group at GSA that, that privilege. Um, so, yeah, uh, one thing that I sort of like to sort of kick off on in this podcast is to discover the beginning. So to begin at the beginning, as Dylan Thomas says, uh, where did it all start for you? Where did the inspiration to be uh, involved in the arts, uh, and indeed with music. Where did it start? Where did it come from?
1: I grew up with it. My family were involved. Uh, my grandfather, uh, he sang and he played piano and the organ. Uh, that's my mum's dad. And then mum was always a singer and an actor. She was interested in uh, being on stage for the music, but also for the the, the broader performance. And so I think uh, she met my dad when he was more of a lighting technician, I think. He was doing electrics on things. And then eventually he went into audio because he, he found the sound side of everything fascinating, you know, sound installation, live sound. So as a family, we kind of were around theatres all the time, whether it was community theatre, pro am, uh, there was operetta. Uh, Mum was in the chorus of, of operettas, and an opera company that uh, was a, a touring company in Sydney when I was very little. And in all of that world, I Got on the piano at a very young age. I got to do uh, some stage work when I was about seven. Um, and at a certain point, there were people like drama teachers and speech teachers who were around, uh, voice teachers that kind of said, yeah, this is an interesting person. Let's let us have him along to our drama club or let's, you know, do some uh, private lessons once a week. Uh, so this was true of the, the piano teachers I had and of the, the theatre teachers. And so I did grow up with a lot of this, and I remember sitting in rehearsal rooms uh, night after night, week after week, depending on where the context was. And it was a, a thing to be to be dragged around to stuff. And I do recall when I was very small, maybe I was about four years old. I was being driven away from uh, a second dress rehearsal by my grandparents because it was time for me to go home. And I, <laughs> I was standing at the on, on the back seat of the car, and I was banging on the window because I wanted <laughs> to stay for the second dress rehearsal. So I was obviously uh, a theatre child from from very early on.
0: Oh, that's, I can't imagine now that you'd be like, you're so immersed in that moment in the rehearsal room. Like they're, they're doing all kinds of magic and you get that tap on your shoulders, like, come on, time to go now, let's go. And you're like, no, no, just f- five, five more minutes, five more minutes and <laughs> being dragged away. But uh, no, I completely, I yeah, you know, I think we've all sort of had that moment in the in the rehearsal room where you sort of experience just pure, ma- just pure magic and, like, and you want to just sample as much of that as you can um, I suppose really it's a bit of a difference, is there a kind of a difference to discovering that spark when it comes to uh, actors working on plays or is it actors working on, uh, well singers more importantly working on musicals or cabaret but I suppose you can still find sparks of brilliance in both of them it's just like one is kind of in a more sort of decorative realm when it comes to like, and there's music and there's atmosphere and everything else in between. Whereas with, you know, you have to find the the magic in the words when it comes to plays. Um, Is that a fair description or is it kind of everything sort of bonds together to create this wonderful thing known as the arts that we know?
1: Yeah, I guess it's, uh, the whole experience is really important. The thing that I learned early on in my childhood was the integration of song dance scene um i loved musical theater when i was very young and that was that was where i got all of my uh, sort of creative impulse from i think i know probably most about uh, american history or culture from musicals and i i know an enormous amount of quite random stuff about the world from having spent that time in the theater and maybe that's where the fact that an actor has to be interested in everything that's where it comes from Uh, so I do remember a turning point in my teens when I watched plays that were not musicals that didn't have any song or dance in them and that was new for me and it was so powerful the idea that speaking actors could make me feel as intensely as singing and dancing actors Mm. Uh, and so i never have given music away and i've never given away that link between the two things but the thing that the thing that i've been driven towards and this happened uh, a little little later in in my studying um career as a student i i made the decision that i wanted to train as a theater director because of text because I wanted to get deeply into what is it to unpack a play, because mm-hmm. the writer really is, the writer is our great teacher at drama school, you know, the the, the words. Um, as you say, Dylan Thomas, love the words, love the words. That mm-hmm. um, It is um, it is something in an artist's uh, imagining that happens, I would say, you know, it takes 10 years for a good play to. To fully cook, uh, mm-hmm. but the first ideas that that playwright has are simply um, they're brewing at a very um, at, a, at a very low level, and they and the characters sit for a long time, and the scenarios sit, and they develop, and eventually the words start to come to to the writer. Um, and so I think what our job is, because we don't have ten years to do it, mm-hmm. as as actors and directors is to sit with the play for our six week, four week, two week rehearsal period, however long (laughs) the budget allows, and to get as, as deeply into a kind of reverse engineering of that process. So we have to take the play apart Uh, A bit like, you know, a a beautiful new car that we've bought, but we pull it apart and we look at the components of it, we see how they work, and then we put it back together Uh, and in some way, it doesn't go back exactly as it came out of the shop because our job is 50%, you know, the the writer gives us half of the creative experience and then it's our job as, as creative people, as actors, as directors, designers to yeah to reshape that in our own in our own interpretation with with enormous respect for what's there on the page
0: oh massively yeah because um one thing that i remember from our first day uh, working on rabbit hub when we sort of did like the read through all, all around you know in a circle and uh i i loved how you were very very specific about every time there was a beat in the line or there was a pause you would always say and now there's a beat and now there's a pause now there's a beat, then there's a pause, you know, and, you know, with, we're there to, and it's funny because in, in that rehearsal process, you know, you discover the power of what it, what is being said when nothing has being said at all. And of course that is the writer's ambition for that in a way. And um, so that sort of brings me on to sort of the first question today is like, so when an actor is in the rehearsal room and do forgive me, I know, I know from all, all this experience you gave us through the rabbit hole days, but, uh, I think for anyone watching who's or listening, who's interested in what to do on the very first day or the first task to get that discovery process going when they get a script for the first time, what what would you say was the very first thing that they should be, they should look at? What's the very first thing they should be doing?
1: Yeah, uh, this is, is a good question. I mean, as you say, the the, the play we worked on, Rabbit Hole, which is David Lindsay, a here is a, a, a play that's been written in the last 15 years, uh, you'll be looking at um, contemporary people in uh, middle class America, um, not yet middle aged people. So you've got a context there, you know, these are people who have a young family. Mm. Um, so immediately we're we're looking at context but what I love about having a new text in the room no matter what it is is to treat it almost like uh almost like an archaeologist would you know even if it's a new play uh it's 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 an artifact it comes from a culture it comes from a time and to understand the context of that And the best way to start of course is to begin reading for meaning and that for me is the most important thing about the first read of any play even if you're reading hamlet again (laughs) read for the first time for meaning so you're really giving the author giving the writer as i said earlier you're giving them the respect of spending the time dwelling on their words on their choices it doesn't mean that you have to read particularly slowly but what you mustn't bring is oh yes i know this play oh yes i've seen a, a dozen film versions of it and and i'll just you know i'll just bring in all my preconceptions and i'll just jump in with a whole lot of assumptions and mm-hmm. and i kind of go well that's not very respectful a to the author but it's also not very respectful to your own creativity because what if you discover things that you knew nothing about. Why would you put yourself in this kind of cliched position when you first do that first read? The table read, as it's known, is such an important moment. And first day of rehearsal can be, oh gosh, in some theatre companies, it's almost a performance. But if you're the rookie in that theatre company, if you're the new person on the block, don't try and perform because all the old hands, they'll be trying to outdo one another. They'll have done dozens of shows together. They'll have all their in-jokes. But for the recent graduate actor, who's first off the blocks, you know, first show off the blocks, you want to show that you can lift words off the page. You can read well and use your instrument, use your voice. You can use your imagination in the moment. Now, they may have sent you the script before, but you don't want to make a lot of assumptions. You're lifting the words off the page with respect for the writer, and you're listening to the other actors. This is really important. Your own reading of the play is one thing, but listening to the other scenes, piecing together, a bit like a detective. As I said, it's like an archaeologist. What is this artifact? What have I found? Where does it fit in the world? And how does it speak to my own experience and creativity?
0: Mm. Yeah, and that's... That's really cool because I, I often sort of get caught in this trap of saying because I love the play, uh, The Crucible. I know we were talking about it just before we came on, um, by Arthur Miller, obviously. And it was, you know, I've seen the like the 2014 version of from the old Vic with Richard Armitage and Adrian Schiller, who's been on the show. Uh, I've, I've watched it so many times because it's such a beautiful version of that play, directed by Yale Farber, and everyone who's just a queen of directing. And, uh, you know, and funny enough, I did The Crucible sort of like, it was my first kind of local gig after, after I did my degree. And, you know, I brought a lot of that experience of that show like with me into the space. And I thought, you know, I've, seen it, I know what to do, I've listened I listened to Yale Farber, I've watched Yale Farber do it, that's the, the best way, that's the only way to do it, which I know it isn't, and uh, it has brought that, <laughs> a lot of that into the room, but what um, it was helpful, but now having sort of been through what we've been through, um, you know, finding your own interpretations into things, you know, bring that into the room, you know, yes, um, Richard Armitage did it very well, yes, Yale Farber did well, but that's their versions sadly we weren't a part of it you know it's time for us to find our version and sort of bring it and sort of bring it forward in a way and so what would you say was um part of the rehearsal process which you which you should leave uh until that that you don't have to rush into that particular aspect straight away obviously you learn your lines and you get a figure of the context first but what what part of the rehearsal process, should you not be sort of rushing towards to like right away? As like in terms of like making gesture choices or character choices? What would you say was something that developed rather than you should be rushing to?
1: I always say don't try and do opening night. I mean, that's the most dangerous thing is mm-hmm. that in the rehearsal room, your focus is on opening night. I, 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 it, it can't be or it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, Of course, there's some forms of performance where it has to be, like if you're doing, I don't know, a gala concert as a musical theatre performer, and it's on tomorrow night, you've got to think, how can I get through this material quickly, I've got to learn a harmony for the ensemble bit, I know what my solos are, and you know, of course, there is a pragmatism to that. But if you're in a six week rehearsal process, day one, the last thing you want to start with is opening night. You want to allow the discoveries that come from working with the play, working with your colleagues in the room, um, allowing those magical moments of unexpected stuff to suddenly appear. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of trust and it does take a lot of calm sense of who you are in the rehearsal room. I think possibly, possibly that's one of the, the biggest challenges when uh, a young actor is studying. Uh, because we get that feeling of, of a slightly angsty feeling of, you know, if, if I don't do it all now, you know, how will I ever prove that I can succeed? Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that is, that's understandable. But it's what, it's what we often say if, if somebody uh, does go into to, to training and has to, sometimes they will, you know, you, you find that people were offered uh, either the course of their dreams or the role of their dreams. And then they say, can I give up the role in order to do the studying? Well, the answer is the roles will still be there, the shows will still be there, the plays, the, the, the films will still be looking for actors uh, even after you've you've gone away for three years to train and you'll be better for it. So I think the same thing is true for the, the, the rehearsal period is that we don't want to second guess what the outcome is going to be until we get to that point where we have to start making some pragmatic choices so be brave early in the process would be my advice be courageous about making making discoveries and also as i've said about honoring the playwright the writer is to have respect for traditions and i think that's one of the things that uh, keeps coming up is this balance between uh, brave innovation Uh, it's a kind of research if you like that you're in the rehearsal room saying i don't know what's going to happen here but as a good researcher i think the best research the quality research is where you step in not knowing you don't go in with a theory you don't step in with some question that you think you're going to answer you actually go in um it's what they call in 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 research circles they call this an inductive approach because you don't know you don't have a research question here i i step into arthur miller's text and i don't know what questions are going to arise and i don't know how i'm going to solve them yet the director presumably has done a lot of that work prior to the process starting so that's a conversation as well so there is a there's a um uh, a kind of back and forth there there's a, a yeah a conversation that happens in in the room but for the actor to have made a whole lot of i keep saying in classes don't don't bring you don't put your homework on stage because you end up bringing stale choices from yesterday or two weeks ago you do the homework, of course, but when you're in the moment, in 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 the rehearsal, in the scene, you have to deal with what's actually there, and trust that all that other work that you've you brought on board is going to support you. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's great. And um, yeah, I think we, another sort of well, a colleague of yours, um, Don Rouse, also at GSA, is uh, interested in finding the. The, the the naturalism i would say you know just the thought of of being observed and just and finding the comfort in that like to sort of say like you you've done all your work you know all your lines and now just have that that ability just to be present and just to be calm and just allow the work to come like to come naturally as a result um i sort of, i well, another thing i discovered from you was the, uh, the the memorization process which you talked about i think you called it a mechanical a memorization process of learning the lines where you just where you write just your part down and you just learn it like with no emotion just like like a drilling of just getting all, all the words in your head and then the emotion comes later um you know and i found it particularly beneficial because like the words were all there and then and like i said the emotions sort of came later so and how would you describe that process and how beneficial it is to actors
1: yeah it's it's a discovery that i made through uh, working on meisner technique and sanford meisner who uh, was one of the great uh, american acting teachers throughout the 20th century um, one of the the points here was a little like <laughs> it connects into one of my other areas of interest which is um, playing piano for ballet class imagine that they would be connected but they are when a person is in the physical requirements of something like ballet it to me is a complete analogy for what an actor is in in terms of the requirements for the text so mechanical is a tough word because as a musician i like things to be automatic i don't want the performance to be mechanical okay. But there are some mechanics in the body and in the brain and in the voice, et cetera, which need to be dealt with. The point is that stuff that's on the page from that playwright has to come out of you, whether you like it or not, (laughs) Um, in the same way that the body of the dancer has to know the steps, has to understand what is the sequence that's required of me through this ballet exercise and that sequential uh, sense is in effect mechanical you know it's a list of stuff that i have to do now if the dancer dances mechanically we get nothing expressive out of it but there is a point in every artist's experience uh, same for me as a, as a pianist as a as a musician uh, i know that there are particular uh, mechanizations automatisms in my body that I have to be able to do in order to produce the music what I don't want to be doing at the keyboard is thinking what's the next note what's the next chord because that will stop me having the flow in the expression of the music that's where my goal needs to be so what I have to do to memorize the piece whether it's the dance steps the music, the keyboard, the the actor in the scene, I have to have this slightly mechanized process of knowing, can I speak all of my character's words from the beginning of the play to the end of the play without having to, to do too much thinking about what's next? Because my, my thinking should be on what do I want? Yeah. How are you behaving? How have you just spoken to me? Why are you picking up that glass? Why have you turned the door handle and you're going to leave? All of those things are far more important to me than trying to remember what's next line. So for a a young actor early in training, one of these things to understand is how important it is to be able to uh, swallow, digest the whole play, and just be able to bring it out of you when it's needed. So the process you described, we would write by hand, our own lines, uh, almost like a monologue, and it just goes on and on and on. And each time another character speaks, we just put a forward slash, so we know visually on the page, somebody else has something to say. But at this point, that doesn't matter. I'm not gonna learn the other characters' lines. I'm just writing my lines. And there is a brain science thing which probably Meisner was not aware of at the time he was teaching, but uh, Arthur Miller used to do this as well with Shakespeare, Arthur Miller would sit with Shakespeare's plays and just copy them out, which as a writer is a good learning tool, what did this other writer do? But it is uh, it's a physical thing that we do by writing it out in our own handwriting. We're working our brain in a different way. And we couldn't know this if we didn't have brain science to study what goes on. But obviously Meisner intuited this. He knew that it was a useful practice to do this. Uh, A little like when a musician writes out a score. The composer Benjamin Britten used to do this with Bach. He would sit and rewrite Bach. because he just wanted to learn what has this other um, other composer done and so again it comes back to this respect for the words so we're not trying to be mechanical because the words don't matter we're trying to be mechanical because boy do they matter
0: yes. Yeah. absolutely yeah i'd say i just want to throw it to now benjamin britain writing out bach <laughs> that's probably the best music he ever wrote and it wasn't his <laughs> Uh, as you can probably said, I'm not a fan. So, <laughs> oh dear. But um, that brings me on to possibly one of the main topics I want to I want to uh, talk to you about today, which is, of course, the work of Sanford Meisner. And uh, you sort of just spoke about him just now. But uh, how would you describe his technique, and how, and you know, I I know full well just how helpful it is to actors. But again, like the memorization process, how does he? How did he create his technique, and how should actors reap the benefits of his work?
1: Yeah, I find Meisner interesting, and I stumbled on why I found him interesting. I was immersed in some work hmm, about twenty years ago, where I was a musical director on a on a uh, on a piece of theatre that had actors doing certain exercises that were being referred to as Meisner. I thought, this is interesting. But because I was on the music side of the production, I, I wasn't dealing directly with the actors. And then probably about 10 years ago, uh, some Meisner work was happening uh, in in a course that I was teaching on. And again, I was coming back to the vocabulary. So it interested me. And eventually, I decided, look, if I want to understand this, I have to drop myself in as an actor into some training and, and get to understand. And so I would say it's been ah, seven or eight years now that I've just been immersing myself more and more into this work. Wow. And the thing that I stumbled on was how important listening is to Meisner's approach. Hmm. And the great stumble was Meisner was a pianist. He played piano when he was very young and training as a musician at the Damroche Institute, which became Juilliard in New York uh, wow. and was... Um, This was very early in his life and in his career so he was in his teens uh and he played piano all the way through his his life and one of the things that's interesting when he became uh the teacher at the neighborhood playhouse in new york um that school curiously had pianos in every room it wasn't a musical theater school and it wasn't a music conservatoire but As an acting institution that obviously had people doing some singing and some music, every room had a piano. And I think that is fascinating because it brings us into a kind of um, crossroad between how a musician listens and how an actor listens. And so for me, that was the most powerful thing. The way that Meisner did this is very straightforward. He could see that there were two problems for actors. One was that they were self-conscious and he thought how can i solve that and the other thing was that he noticed that people would pretend to do stuff instead of actually doing it mm. these two problems he sought to solve and there were two very simple solutions but obviously he discovered them over time and over practice with his colleagues and his students so the self-consciousness was to take the focus off yourself and onto the other actor so that The other actor in the scene, your scene partner, becomes the most important thing and you have to give them all your focus. So this comes back to a Stanislavski principle of of observing. You know, we we observe the world. We observe how other human beings behave. We're observing the words that they choose, the actions that they make. And so putting your focus on the other actor is not so tricky. The hard part then is this business of pretending. And the one thing that Meisner could see was there is nothing that we get to do on stage as an actor that isn't somehow given to us. So it isn't authentically of us. We have to take it maybe from the playwright, maybe from the designer, maybe from the director. And so in a way we're being asked to be fake with a lot of the stuff that we do. So that's really tough. How do we get rid of pretending? And Meister could see that the one thing that we do on stage that isn't fake is to listen to the other actor. And that's the most powerful thing because you just can't get through a scene without listening to your scene partner. So it's a little feedback loop that happens. I send you my focus as my scene partner and I have to give you my focus because you're going to speak a line. And I have to listen to that line and the way I prove to you in rehearsal that I have listened to you is I repeat it. And this is where repetition is one of the key principles of Meisner's work is that if you can repeat back what the other actor said, you prove that you're listening to them and your focus can never come back to self consciousness. Because that means you've stopped listening, because you're worrying about yourself instead of the other actor. So it's a wonderful little feedback loop, and for me, it's, it it relates to music. It uh, it relates to it relates to movement as well, because it's a very embodied process. Uh, but this business of the listening actor is fascinating to me, and, and Meisner's all about it. Mm.
0: That's that's brilliant. Yeah, that that's really sort of refreshed my mind. Really. Um, yeah, thank you for that. Um, and I think um, th- there's another sort of aspect of Meisner. You know, he sort of, as you say now, there's a, it's like a continuation of Stanislavsky, and he's and there was like two other people who sort of went down similar road, uh, roads as he did. There was Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg, and then there's a connection of um, of what the method or method acting were like, and what it what it's really all about. And I, I feel like the the media is sort of distorted what it what it actually is all about. And I think um. You know, you're not being Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, go and live in the jungle for six months or walk around New York with a top hat and build a butcher moustache for three months prior to filming so you can be in the characters. like, oh, God. But um, <laughs> I tried that. I must admit, I did try that once for an audition. I had a Hamlet speech and I was miserable on the train all the way up to London <laughs> thinking like, OK, this OK, let's see how this works. And I got to the audition room and I was burnt out. There's no energy left whatsoever all my energy was gone and i thought oh it's a shame the audition panel wasn't in on the train with me i, I, I had it there but i don't have it anymore now but um i think there's a a lot of you know you know you shouldn't do that and you know just you know don't believe the media sort of distortion um but meister sort of came up with an as if uh, are you familiar with the term as if like so imagine you're in a scene with a character and if you can't you know, if you want to bring something from your own life into the team, but you can bring something that's not entirely true, but imagine as if someone you love has had has had a, an accident or someone you, you know has just got that job, which they've always wanted, and that will bring the emotion. Is that, is that a safe practice from, from an active perspective?
1: It's interesting because, uh, as you know, Ollie, one of my uh, hats that I wear at uh, Guildford School of Acting is uh, as a well-being champion. So I uh, wow. act as a conduit between uh, the, the well-being center with its counselors and so on, and uh, students and staff in in the school at GSA. Um, I'm not a counselor myself, but I have a great interest in obviously the, uh, the, the world of, of performance brings up psychology all the time. Uh, and I think we need to be more and more sensitive to this. So, yeah, you're asking a really important question, and it's got a whole lot of history attached to it. And uh, it's true what you're saying is that uh, people will they'll beat it up for a for a good story um, rather than necessarily uh, being concerned about the, uh, the the inner life of the actor. Um, I'll, I'll try and put a put a put a simple uh, frame around it, which is that. Uh, Lee Strasberg uh, was a member of the group theatre in the 1930s in America, and he would be thought of now as the the sort of grandfather of method acting. Uh, He learned what he knew about Stanislavski's system, and I'll call it a system rather than a method, yeah. Um, Stanislavski's system is is sprawling, and it and it takes quite a bit of uh, quite quite a bit of, of looking at all of the, the different angles that you can find about it. But uh, Strasbourg learned Stanislavski's work secondhand from uh, a, a pair of uh, Russian emigres to America called Boloslavsky and Uspenskaya, and they opened the American Laboratory Theatre uh, in the 1920s, and that's where Strasbourg studied. And so he took the Stanislavski idea that we can use our own emotions and our memory of our own experience, um, which is a fascinating one. Mm -hmm. But he took this idea, uh, which was one of Stanislavski's experiments, if you like, and he and Strasbourg took this idea and and really ran with it and and developed it um, in a very, very deep and thorough way. The tricky thing for me is that I push it to its its extreme and say, well, hang on, if I have to play an axe murderer, I'm not going to go out with an axe and start killing people. So my, and, and of course, I know there will be some Strasbourg practitioners who will say, oh, well, that's just being, you know, that, that that's being too too crass about it. But you can understand that there's a logic here that we need to follow. So what you've just described in terms of Meisner sort of turning away from this idea that we only use our own experiences and our own memories, yeah. um, which is valid. We know this from, gosh, there, there were psychologists asking questions about this from the 19th century. You know, we could reliving our experiences and they, we know more and more now with brain science and physiology that we hold experiences in the body. You know, that it's, it's, it's biological, it's physiological. But the question, as you say, is it safe to unlock this stuff in a rehearsal room? Well, if the safe space is created, yes. But my question, as was Meisner's question, is this a professional necessity? Do we have to do it that way? Are there other ways? and Meisner, and you mentioned uh, Stella Adler as well. Stella was also very interested in how can we use imagination to take us into those places where we've known nothing like the experience of our character. We've never been anywhere near our our character's uh, current moment. And so how can we use other sensations, um, other imaginary processes to take ourselves there? So i'm very very clear with students about that that we're uh, we're not doing method acting when i'm in a room with them although meisner adler they get lumped in with Strasbourg as part of the american method the thing that differentiates adler and meisner from Strasbourg is that they were interested in what are the imaginative options and you described um and it's the most contentious of Meisner's ideas that you take something that is of your experience. So, for example, I have a brother, but I don't have a sister. So, there's no point choosing my sister because she doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So, I would choose my brother, and then I might say, um, uh, "He's won the lottery." So, how do I feel for my brother, knowing that his winning ticket is going to make him a millionaire? And So that actually, even saying that makes me feel excited. But it is contentious. If I don't have a great relationship with my brother, which I do, (laughs) um, I would not want to put somebody in my real life into a very negative situation if that was not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And it's the one area that Meisner called emotional preparation. And when we look at the Meisner work, I would agree it's the most contentious part of Meisner's work because it feels a little bit like the Strasbourg use your own experiences. Uh, And so I offer it to students, but I don't necessarily use it on a regular basis. It's there for the student who wants to try it if they feel that they're secure with it. Uh, But again, I I always come back to this idea of um, of working in a, in a in a space that is held and supported yeah. um yeah so i i hope that describes uh, the Oh no, the... it does
0: no it really does it really does that's great um yeah funny enough i'm just reminded of um that story you probably know this already but um for anyone who doesn't know there's there's an amazing story when lawrence liby i think did his final film uh i think it was marathon man and uh Dustin Hoffman, I think, was a studied with Strasbourg or was fully immersed in the Strasbourg method way of doing things and uh, in marathon man. I haven't seen the film you know, or in its entirety, but I think I get a basic gist of what it was all about. Uh, Laurence Olivier played. Um, I'm not going to assume. But anyway, but the two of them were in this film together. And the two characters, Olivier is playing like a medical man. And you've got Dustin Hoffman who's playing like his patient. There's people out there who have probably seen the film thinking I'm getting this entirely wrong, but well, just bear with me. And uh and Hoffman comes in and his character is on the page, says he's supposed to have been awake for three days, hasn't had a shower, he hasn't cleaned himself, he's just been there. And so that's what Dustin Hoffman did. He turned up, hadn't showered for three days, hadn't slept for three days, sat there looking totally miserable, totally just just in pieces. And Olivier comes in and goes, Dear boy, what what's happened i feel so bad for you and it's like i said yeah i know it's just 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 the work it's really beat me up i said why well, what, why why is the world beating you up he said yeah because you know the carrots has been awake for three days hasn't washed and i have to live the part he said live the part he said yeah you have have to live the part to get get to the truth and olivier steps back and goes dear boy why did not you try acting it's so much easier <laughs> and and that really stuck stuck with me. And Classic
1: story, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I you try acting? It's so much easier. Uh, and yeah, well, again, Olivier comes from from a world where you know uh, you, you ask, you know, what, what what's what's your great secret to a warm up? You know, And the answer <laughs> may come from a from an actor of his generation. Oh, I don't know, a cigar and a brandy. should do it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh dear. so f- funny enough I, j- I just want to really quickly touch before we move on my to next question um i, I again i want to from our classes i remember you talking about when you discovered the website uh, pinterest and uh where you create storyboards for characters and things like that and uh i remember you saying oh, i was so excited when i first discovered pinterest i imagine a whole website dedicated to harold pinter and then you realized it was just a website full of images and i was like oh if only there was one but um but Jeff- well
1: i did say that to one colleague and she said oh i couldn't think of anything worse
0: <laughs> oh no the work of- i just want to quickly touch on harold pinter and, and and because i'm a huge fan of his work and um you know we we're talking about the beats and stuff earlier and then you know you got the pinter pause etc but I love the stories about, um, I've, I've mentioned this a few times, um, if my very first episode of this podcast was with Harry Burton, who was uh, Pinter's sort of best friend for many, many years, and uh, acted with him, wrote with him, just did everything. And, uh, <laughs> and he told this story that, um, this is, he worked with, Alan, Pinter works with Akebourne on his play, The Birthday Party, I think, in, in the 60s. And Alan Akeborn shows up and he's got all these questions. He said, how, what's their motivation in this scene? Where does, where does my need, what's my objective or something like that? What do these characters do? Where do they come from? And Pinter just sat back and just said, mind your own fucking business. It's all in the text. <laughs> and, <laughs> and,
1: uh,
0: and I thought that was brilliant. So, yeah, how, how do you, um, you know, tell me about your love for Pinter as well and your interest in, in his plays.
1: Uh, I think that is a, a sort of sideline of things of what of, of, of what I think of as the musicality of theatre for yeah. a man, as a musician the 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 structure of his scenes um feels like a musical score so when when the choices are being made to put a particular length of line or a a, a one word thought uh, onto the page. Um, It feels, they feel like musical phrases. Now, I would say this is true for for many, many writers, not just Harold Pinter. But I think the the turning point in British theatre that Pinter represents is that he understood rest and silence, which from a musical point of view is so fascinating because... Rest can mean in music that the, the, the music has repose, you know it, it lays back and it feels comfortable. But there are times when a rest actually makes us go, ah, oh, this is alarming. why has the music stopped? Why has the and, and why has the, why have the words stopped? Yeah. And so this question of subtext comes up with with the pause. So there is, there are some things that we know on the page when we look at the score, we see the comma and we think, well, okay, that has a gr- grammatical effect. We see the full stop and we know that that's leading us to the end of the thought. We see that uh, a, a dash could, could indicate that we're being interrupted or maybe we're interrupting ourselves. So there's a different kind of, of pausing or stopping there, um, arresting. Um, and then we see that there's three dots. The ellipsis and how long is an ellipsis and, and and what does that mean and the thought is still there think about the thought bubbles that come out of a, a cartoon character's mind the little dots that come out before the bubble um and then uh, we, we see something a little longer like the word pause gets used and so Pinter will say pause and that's fascinating because we think what well, how long is that, and, and what does it mean? You know, mm. and then finally he will use the word silence, and the, the how long is a silence? But then, what is the space of a silence? What is its shape? What is its sound? Um, so that the 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 great uh, modern composer John Cage wrote a whole book called Silence, which is kind of like a <laughs> it's like a, a scrapbook of thoughts and, uh, mm-hmm. and images. Because John Cage asked the question, you know, can we really have a silence? Is there any such thing as being able to stop all sound? But again, I'll say as a musician, all sound is motion, while ever the human body is in vibration, we will always be making sound. Uh, John Cage went to it was in the 1950s, he went to Harvard University, because they had, it was like a recording studio with a, with a um, they called it an anechoic chamber, as in a, a room that has no echoes. Mm. It, was, it was fully soundproofed. And so John Cage is in this room, and he says to the engineer, but I can hear sounds. And the engineer says, yeah, yeah, what are they? He said, well, there's a really high-pitched whining. And the engineer says, yeah, that's your nervous system. Wow. Wow. Mm. And John Cage says, well, and there's a really low end rumble that I can hear. And the engineer says, yep, that's your blood circulating through your body. Wow. So when we ask this question of what is, a can we have a silence, if we we're quiet enough, we could hear the other side of the planet, we could hear the other side of the universe, because there would still be uh, things would still be in motion, life would still be happening. So I find this uh, uh, yeah, this this relationship to to text, to music, to listening, to what do playwrights put on the page. Um, I I love the the sort of metaphysical uh, questions that uh, Harold Pinter offers when he just says silence. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, Espe- especially like um, you seen the you seen the um, uh, the dumb waiter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. That I won't give it away, but there's a certain thing which happens right at the very end. And that silence is just eerie. It's like, how has this happened? And like you can like use, and as you were saying, the metaphysical stuff, like you only not so you have you become very aware of your own heartbeat and your own sort of <laughs> circulation of your thoughts, thinking, how the fuck is this happening? <laughs> Honestly. And uh it's it's that's amazing. And I, I, I want to go into this room. I want to hear my nervous system. I want to hear my. Ah.
1: Well, yeah. it does happen if you've had uh, one or two too many drinks uh, and enough. you lie yeah. down in a very quiet bedroom.
0: <laughs> very true. Very true. You will
1: hear through the pillow. <laughs> <laughs> That's the ringing in the ears. Um after he's, a big mind
0: speak <laughs> like a man for, of, of experience in that department <laughs> <laughs> we all have we all have been there um, that oh, was fantastic so um so in terms of like engaging with the scene partner i know you've already talked about this with, with uh with the meister technique and i think to sort of deep sort of clarify that it's not just like project i think you know i know you've talked about this but it's you're not like projecting yourself or looking really intensely at your scene partner it's it'd be fair to say it's all about to engage all you have to do is just listen and just accept what they're what they're saying
1: accept is a really good word uh when we are ourselves we accept the other self that's there with us you know there they are doing their thing yes we're not uh we're not judging or sort of investigating or probing we're just watching the other human being and 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 i suppose from a listening perspective it's like we're a big ear where our whole self is listening to the person our eyes become a listener our our breath we breathe in the other actor as soon as we step into this funny old thing called character which is still us and yet it's not as soon as we step into character uh, there's there's this question of, of what we're perceiving from the other person's behavior in relation to what we have a responsibility to, you know, because we know they're not my needs, they're my character's needs, yeah. but I have to make them my own needs. So I have to really be, that's where I might start to observe in a maybe more judgmental way. Maybe I'm curious about the other character that I'm working with. But if we can't find this in ourselves before we go to the playwright's work we're in trouble and i think that's where it's important that we can be open to this uh these these kinds of ideas when we're in training because what we're really trying to do is train our own instincts yeah we're not trying to force something you know we're accepting these are the circumstances of the character so now you know i, I i'm not only me i am also responsible for these other things that I have to accept. And seeing in my scene partner, how they behave in relation to that. That's my job as, as, as the actor is to take that on board. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's great. And I th- another aspect um,
0: is actioning. And uh, I know that this is something that I think depends from actor to actor in a way. So when they go through the script and, you know, again, with the rabbit hole experience, you say on this line, um, uh, what, what's the name of that guy As, um, sort of made more sort of commonly known by Max Stafford-Clark who who talks about actioning and every line he's saying right I'm enveloping you or I'm sharpening you or I'm I'm constructing you I'm, I'm, it's probably not a great example but I'm do, But with every line and it's like this is my action and this is what I want to want, want to do in a way so how would you describe actioning and how would you know how, is it for everyone do you think or is it should everyone do it or is it really just a case of each actor prepares a little bit differently to the other
1: well we're we're on on the other end of the spectrum from where we were talking about the method I mean I think there's no right or wrong or correct way for any actor to train where uh, good trainings offer up opportunities they immerse people in experiences and ultimately we're hoping that uh, across a, a three to one year training that uh the, the student actor is is beginning to build their own process so that once they're they're out of drama school uh they feel confident that they've got um not pick and mix but a tool bag that is useful and gives them some uh through line for their process Gosh, there's a few things there so stanislavski when he first set up the system mm. um <laughs> moscow art theater was doing quite nicely up until uh, the, the the early 1900s um uh because they they kind of had an external process that was you know instead of just being a star actor and you know walking all over the writers text not they didn't really care much about the 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 writer's words they would kind of extemporize but you know if you were the famous star you'd come down the front and speak out to the audience and of course Stanislavski changed all of that. He said, you know, actually what we need to do is observe human behavior and we need to do physical things that show uh, the real life of the character. And that's great because it was an external way of looking at how can we prepare the actor from the outside to be able to become the character. But it's about 1906 that he's in a show saying, ah, but I don't feel anything. We're getting standing ovations for what we're doing on the outside so this is he famously goes and sits on a rock or a bench depends who did the translation it's probably a rock for the soviets and it's a bench for the americans <laughs> um and, 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 you know it's like he he had a moment of of, of going to the mountain as it were to, yeah. you know to, to look into his soul and this is where he comes back to the moscow art theater with the system which is is really a an internal process and it's about what's going on inside for the psychology of the character. It's where we get our round the table uh, script analysis, our text analysis process comes from the system. Um, And there were four banners that he hung in the in the in the rehearsal rooms. Um, So uh, he wanted relaxation, which is important to get rid of tensions that are unnecessary. Um, He wanted, given circumstances to be very important, you know, because we've got to know who are these characters that we're dealing with, what are their circumstances. He wanted focus because he wanted to bring people, as I was mentioning uh, in the Meissner work, to to bring the actors focus into story and connection. And the fourth of these banners was action. Uh, And it's been much... um, spun over over decades, this idea of action. There are some actor trainings in which uh, there is very little attention to anything to do with what we've just spoken about with the method or this kind of halfway house that I've mentioned with, with Meisner technique, but some actor trainings will deal only with actioning. So you learn your lines you choose an action for each line, you play the action from a physical point of view on your scene partner, and if you can see that it changes them, it affects them in a deep way, then we say, okay, there it is, that's actioning. For many practitioners, this is a slightly dry way to work and a slightly intellectual way to work. So I completely understand. You know, I, I'm 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 not uh, I'm not selling any particular thing here as I talk these things through. I I respect them all. Yeah. But the idea of an action is a transitive verb. So a a verb that I can do something to the other actor and see that it has had an impact. So I think you used something like to spike or, or stab. Now, we're not going to hurt the other actor, you know, it's acted aggression, but the spiking or the stabbing is there. And the other actor responds because they have felt spiked or stabbed. Mm. And you can see that a transaction has taken place. You wouldn't use the word love, for example, yes, because love is not a transitive verb, because you can't sort of do it physically, and you can't see uh, a response from it. So we're looking for transitive verbs for that. I find it's useful for some students when they feel like they're inside themselves too much, and they want to come out of themselves in order to engage with the other actor. But for some student actors, it's it it, it doesn't do as much for them as the the business of listening to the other actor and drawing in. Um, You mentioned colleagues at GSA, Jack Bessel uh, at GSA. uh, Several years ago in in one of her workshops, I heard her use the terms being on send and being on receive. And I think terrific because the, the Meisner work, the listening is about being on receive. But when we choose to do some actioning on a text, we are on send. And it actually, it it forces us to say, what am I trying to do to the other actor in the scene? Mm.
0: Fascinating stuff. Um, Yeah. I think that really, really does help, you know, just the process of listening and how, and I think all three could actually like intertwine into one process in a way. I'm probably just speaking for myself here, but you know, if, there are some blocks and you're struggling to find the key to that particular lock you know each one of those three things can can help in a way so it doesn't have to be all one thing or the middle thing or the or the third thing for example you can have like a mixture of all three which goes into the overall experience which which really really does help um, help massively so there's always a way in uh i think um as a director yourself, uh, when it comes to because we talked about the text analysis, but when it comes to creating a world, so if you're being produced with ideas for set and and the the visual elements of the play, in a way, what like where do you? What's the again? What's the first and last thing that you sort of look at in terms of creating a world? But like specifically for stage, like and. Where do you begin, and where do you want to finish in terms of creating the visual aspects of the show?
1: Yeah, uh, I think we have to come back to the writer's words, unless, of course, we're devising a piece, which is slightly different. But the text analysis that what I would do as as an actor, as a as a as an acting teacher, I would also do as a director. So, looking at, at what does what does the writer require of this piece? Um, you're asking. The really fundamental actor questions like um, who, what, where, when, why, how, Uh, and those things, if you keep asking those questions, you get solutions from the text and from the page. The one uh, big part of my training at NIDA in Sydney as a director was uh, the, D- the deputy director of, of NIDA at the time was uh, Peter Cook who has since gone on to run Carnegie Mellon University's drama department and Peter was also the head of design at NIDA for many many years um, and he had a great influence on, on that institution and on uh, on the directors who came through the directing course and Peter would always say Don't think of it as set or costume, think of it as a world, think of it as the world of the play and what does it, what does it look like, what does it sound like, what does it smell like, you know, how, who are these people that inhabit it. So it goes back to what we were saying earlier about not making assumptions about it, working from the text and pulling out the the clues that the, the playwright is giving along the way. So when we start to uh, talk about the visual aspects of a production, these are people, they're not characters. They're wearing clothes, not costumes. Mm -hmm. They inhabit spaces that might be interior, exterior spaces. They're not on a set. So we have to deal with the real world first. We might be doing a naturalistic drama but we might be doing something that's far more abstract far more expressionist for example uh i think the same principle applies we have to deal with who are these human animals <laughs> they're all animals and, and how are they inhabiting what what is what are the spaces they inhabit and what are their interactions yeah. so when i'm working with a designer the conversations are about real world things and a good designer will bring reference images from the world of 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 the play they might be historical things they could be um, much more expressive things that come from a a, a to do with sensation and uh, and emotion but that design but part of the design process there when we we say words like mood board you know when we put together a kind of collection of images for for a character or for a, a for a, an environment that the characters will inhabit that's where we're in a, a really important transaction that it's the same principle as I was saying about the actor on the first day of rehearsal if we leap to opening night and we don't give ourselves the opportunity to experience experience and express during that process, we might as well just call Rent-A-Set and say, I'm doing this play, please deliver it. And then there's no process at all. Again, pragmatically, if you've got a day to rehearse something and it's on tomorrow night, <laughs> I'm going to call rent a yeah, set. Yeah, We need you now. <laughs> if, I, if I know that opening night is three months away, I can take at least the first month because I'm still not at rehearsal one yet in order to deepen that experience and then slowly we know what the the room is or the environment i mean we might be performing in a forest we might be performing in a west end theater you know then we start to say okay so what are the parameters here how can we put this world we've created into this space at gsa or wherever we might happen to be working And then we're not constrained by the idea, oh, it has to fit that space. Oh, it must fit that budget. If we start with the restrictions of the space and the, oh, we've only got 10 quid, we will never go anywhere creatively. But if we say we have unlimited budget, unlimited options, we're going to come up with a very interesting idea, a solid, solid idea that is tested against every important moment in the play. And then when we're told we've got about 100 quid to do this, we don't suit the idea to the money. The money then suits the idea. So we, we, we keep the big idea, but we only have 100 quid to spend on it. And that, to me, is a much more exciting way of working. I, I, can't, I can't bear it when a production meeting starts with, we only got 50 quid, so you better not expect much. <laughs> That is not the beginning of a design process.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're just sat there thinking, oh, no, here we go again. (laughs) No, 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 no. We need to create the set, we need to be visual.
1: We need to make the thing, we need to have the idea and, and have the world of the play very clear. Because mm. we will know how to spend that 50 quid, and a good designer will know, ah, yes, that's essential. It has to say this. We must have this. And then we spend the 50 quid really well to make a beautiful statement about the play, as opposed to saying, oh, we didn't have much money. So you're going to have to look at this ugly sofa for the next three hours. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Isn't
0: that great? <laughs> oh, I, I wonder what, because uh, I know we created like a spine of a set for Rabbit Hole, but. Uh... It would have been so cool just to put it in like the Bel Airs or perhaps with the theatres on Surrey campus and just, yeah, just get create that world and see what see what else we could have done with it
1: in a way. Yeah, Ollie, I should say that uh, for, for, for that uh, part of our process, I deliberately chose uh, a designer and director's ideas that had come to a kind of ground plan mm. because that's usually where the actors meet it. Unfortunately, you can't get hired to go through the design process with, I mean, there are companies in the world that do that. But oftentimes we come to the first design presentation and we see the model box and we go, oh, wow, this is the environment we're getting but that's had many months of thought and care by the director and the designer before the actors look into the model box, and then we see um costume renderings, you know, and of course there's that word again costume. In the real world, we only ever wear a costume when we're you know dressing up for a fancy dress party, but the the characters in the play are wearing their own clothes. So we look then at, at, at how a designer has imagined our body um in particular garments and sometimes that surprises us so i always ask actors to be very sensitive to the other artists work when they go for a fitting at wardrobe choose your words carefully yes when you see uh, a gray shirt hanging on a rack and it's yours rather than using the words it's a drab shirt choose the words it has muted tones because that's kinder to the other artist. It's, it's very concerning when a student actor walks into wardrobe and says, well, I'm not wearing that because it's ugly. And you think, ooh, no. they're, they're not the words to be using. Okay.
0: Don't
1: do that! Don't do that! Because because we're we're trying to negotiate with with the the, the other artist who has a conception of this character, and it is often strange because uh, for the actor in the rehearsal room, we may not have had any a sort of bridge into the conversations that the director and the designer have had, and that's where the pragmatism comes back, you know this is the costume that's what you're wearing and we have to find okay how can we then by seeing the, the the garment it's going to change our thoughts about how we will wear it putting it on our body will change how we wear uh, how, how how we, we behave um the, the the shoes we wear the the collar on a, on a shirt or a, a, a dress so these things are always made um They're they're always made part of the 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 creative process and the professional process of having the conversation with with the other artists who are involved.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. You know, it's so because we're we're, we're doing a show and in two weeks, in fact, we'll be in Widows on, on in Pat's and we saw the box three weeks ago, and it was like, wow, exactly as you said it, it was like, oh, my God, wow, this looks so cool. And then we went to the workshop last week to check it out. And, no, this week. Yeah, at least we saw it very recently. Uh, to check it out, and it was just like, oh, wow, okay. And then once, and I think the really exciting bit is when you see it all in the theatre, and it's all put together, and you start to rehearse with it, and then suddenly all these new ideas just start coming up, and the, the play, the world of the play starts to become a lot more visceral as well as just realistic you know i know that's probably not the best word to use but it's there it becomes alive that's better it becomes alive right there in front of you which is great
1: it's, um, tangible, it's physical and and you you have to relate to it in a in a very um in a very practical way
0: yeah. absolutely absolutely i just got two more questions for you today um hey andrew so actually three we'll start we we'll start with this one It's it's a very quick one Now we talked about music and stuff today who is your favorite composer
1: oh lord that's putting me up against the wall um <laughs> <laughs> it, it depends where you mean if you're talking musical theater i'm in the world of of steven sondheim but certainly i love a good jerry herman tune in, in, a, in a musical theater piece uh, i adore his his songs uh but then gosh your Cole Porters, your Gershwins, that's all the classic um music theater, musical theater tunes. If we're in um in in the world of of, of so-called classical music, um, mm-hmm. there's such a, a range of people, but uh in contemporary classical music, I I still really enjoy um there's two Americans uh Philip glass would be one and uh, John Adams who's uh, kind of generation younger but John Adams has some some awesome orchestral music which uh, yeah when I think about uh, the world of uh, composers that slightly bridge into what would be uh, American film music as well is uh, really interesting it's it's hard for me to pin down <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah and um, what about the classics of classics like your Mozart and Beethoven good you
1: yeah look i i always in in my music degree i always railed against this what i loved was the the kind of renaissance and baroque period so uh lots of composers that people don't necessarily know the names of like uh Machau and uh joscane dupre and uh um orlando de lasso so in that kind of renaissance period and then you get into the baroque composers the early baroque is interesting once we get into uh, Monteverdi and Bach, yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, but I, I'm, I've always been uh, at that sort of pre-classical end and then the kind of 20th century. I, I do actually love some really quite um, tough to listen to 20th century music, you know, the stuff that was really quite out there, but it, but I, I love these extremes. Um, I have grown to love more and more of the, um, the, the Mozart piano concertos. And, uh, and of course, Mozart's great work was, uh, was the operas. I mean, that's that's the pinnacle of his, his work. And, and he was somebody who knew how to take a play, because a lot of them are um, adaptations, how to take a play and turn it into a piece of musical theatre, music theatre. Uh, and so yes, Marriage of Figaro, which was the Beaumarchais play. Um, yeah, Don Giovanni, extraordinary. But these are, for me, they're pieces of theatre rather than thinking of them as music. Mm-hmm. The opera people would hate me for saying that because <laughs> <laughs> opera is such a uh, opera is such a music based uh, uh, art form. But I, I can't I can't not think of opera as it has to be great theatre because it's telling the story uh, through the theatre medium.
0: Yeah, but you but you've been involved in opera. You've directed operas, though, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, but it is always attention. I I know it's attention, particularly for the singing actor in that situation. Again, I had a wonderful um, uh, production manager on on one uh, opera that I did where uh, they would always call through the the shout mic. You know, uh, actors standing by, and eventually <laughs> one of the uh, one of the cast members stopped and said, "Please don't call us actors. We're singers." <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, oh, ouch, yes, there it is. Um, Because my my view is if you step onto a stage, even if you consider yourself an opera singer, quote unquote, I'm sorry, my friend, but you've become an actor because you're stepping into the theatre space. Um, So simple things that we might do as actors and what musical theatre students will do all the time is they love the physical challenge while they're singing. But often you will find that there, there are people in, uh, in, in opera contexts who are a little more concerned about what they do physically because they know that it will affect the voice. And that's where you know you're in that edge of it's a music art form because mm-hmm. they want it to sound as brilliant as it can. Uh, and they don't want to sacrifice that by doing cartwheels or hanging upside down. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Um,
0: I do have another question, that came in now. but We've just got a few more left before we finish today. Um, but when you come to composing st- um, stuff, you know, I in my brain I can't even think about because there've been so many different variations of all kinds of different rhythms and different melodies and stuff like that. Like, how how do you compose something without you sort of trodding on on territory like like this melodies has been written before? But how can you create something new? And indeed, how can you like how do you look at like a ballet or a routine and just is it all is it all about just hearing a tune in your head and then just knowing like which chord segment is the right or just basic improvisation and just hope that you remember what you've done how do you do it
1: yeah I think there's a series of vocabularies which as you've done stuff over time in a certain domain you go oh yeah well I get harmony and how that could work and what the possibilities are mm. um the the rhythm of things is so important you know how where is their pulse where is their where do things go twice as fast twice as slow you know all of the 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 relationship to a tempo um the the phrase and the contour of a melody i i love all of that that's that to me comes from uh always being interested in singing, always being interested in, in how words are set to music, that for me is a fascinating area because that you get the rhythm of the text, but then you're getting the pitch contour. I mean, it's the one thing an actor has to do is be their own composer. You don't have a Mozart to set all of the playwright's words to music. You you don't get told your rhythm and your melody. So in fact, in some way, an actor's wo- an actor's work is like a composer. You're having to set the words to a particular tempo and a and a shape and a, a melodic contour of your voice. So I think that's that's how I uh, I come at composition from an improvisatory point of view knowing what the vocabularies are that I want to use. And and so, yes, if I'm playing for a, a dance class and I'm improvising, it's exactly that kind of work.
0: Yeah. I mean, if, I, mean I, I really want to learn a piano at some point in my life because it's just such a beautiful mm-hmm. instrument and everything. But uh, yeah, that's definitely on the bucket list for me. And like, you've completely sold it to me right now about, <laughs> about everything there. And just just promise just promise me and my group that you will play the piano for us i'm going to get this on camera now I'm going to get this on record can you please promise us that you will show us your piano skills even if it's just 30 seconds please just show us some of, of what you can do
1: I'd be happy to. I uh, last, um, one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Rachel Carriage. Uh, she teaches ballet at GSA on a regular basis. And that we, we, we've kept in trying to make our, our timetables intersect so that I could come into one of her ballet classes and just play for the class because she's always on her iPod and ticking through the tracks, which is great, but it would be lovely just to have uh, a, a, an hour of ballet one, uh, one morning where we could just uh, be, colleagues working together, she sets the exercise and, uh, and I uh, improvise the, the music. Sometimes I work from scores as well. But it's just for me, it's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting dynamic music and movement and the connection of text to music. I've always found these things, you know, the kind of uh, little, little Venn diagrams where, where things intersect in, in, in artistic life. Yeah
0: great when well, we got that on camera now we've got it on record so yeah well, that sounds amazing but and just finally um it's kind of two questions in one really but uh, i think this is a lovely sort of uh, place to finish is um when you go to the theater now with friends or family and you you see a play which you haven't seen before that you have seen before um can you i think and i i sort of have this as well but did you have this, can, are you able to switch off your, this is, I'm just coining this phrase, your directed brain. Like, can you can you switch it off and just enjoy the night of the theatre? Or can you just, can you relax when you watch a show? Or is you constantly like, okay, that's a good position for that chair. That's a good position for that act. Okay, their listening's very good. No, they're, they're, their listening not very good. They don't do anything. It's like, ah! It's like, are you able to switch that off or and enjoy a night at the theatre? Or can you, does it always sort of creep in?
1: It's an interesting question because I always say in training that the actor has to get out of the audience and get on stage because yeah. when, as student actors, we 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 love watching other people's work, but we have to know when, when we have to be on stage rather than be in the audience. I don't see it as uh, as cut and dried as that. I feel like part of my theatre-going experience is to enjoy the richness of what all those artists have put into the piece um and i feel like i go to theater because i know it's a piece of artifice but what's lovely is when it it takes you into as i say a world uh and that that world is consistent and it has its own internal logic and it does it's it takes you down you know uh pathways you never expected that for me is what's thrilling and i don't think as professionals we ever really turn off that technical part of ourselves because it's it isn't siloed it's not separate from our expressive life and our our enjoyment of things mm. the, the the techniques that we 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 learn and we develop over a career they are the engine room for our expression as an artist yeah. so I enjoy absorbing that when I go to the theatre because I'm, I'm sensing that and feeling that from, from another group of artists. Yeah. I, I couldn't
0: agree more. You know, it's always that feeling of, okay, well, what are they doing Well, what, what, they're doing this, or maybe I could use that. But I think it's also good to sort of have that sort of detachment and say, and just watch the work and just think, okay, I'm in the audience tonight when I'm on stage next, then I can sort of apply secretly what I'm taking in here, <laughs> just secretly in the background. And just one final question today is: um, What's been an experience that you've had at the theatre and anywhere in the world that you've never
1: forgotten? Gosh, I will probably go back to things like the uh, the Philip Glass operas that have been staged at the ENO. Um, uh, in the 1990s, I'd always wanted to see uh, Philip Glass has a, a trilogy of operas, Einstein on the beach, uh, Arknaten and Satyagraha. And uh, I've not yet seen Einstein staged. I wanted to many years ago, um, but I've seen productions of uh, uh, the other two and they're not short and they're not a simple watch or listen, but I love the fact that they take they take you into a kind of meditative space because uh, the story uh, evolves over over a long long period of time, and in some ways they're using the theatre of image, so it needs to be staged even with Philip Glass's amazing music, uh, but also uh, they're contemplating, um, as the titles would say, um, three historical figures that are quite powerful in terms of their ideas for the world, whether they're scientific, spiritual, political. Um, And I I do enjoy theatre that takes you into that world. Um, again, you're asking me to pin down a single thing, but um, <laughs> in terms of... If
0: there's more than one, then feel free to say more than one. Uh,
1: it just it, it, It's what puts me in mind of it, because we're talking about groups of artists bringing things together. So the yeah. theatre director, Peter Sellers, who worked with... Um, Uh, with John Adams, the composer I mentioned earlier, there's a similar thing going on there with uh, uh, a a team of artists. Uh, And I I love this idea that uh, collaborative work can bring, uh, particularly in in theatre that has music in it, Um, that we don't say that the top artist is the composer, that in fact, the music is part of the drama, is part of the design, is part of the the director's concept, and that that the director isn't some auteur in that way. It's a coordinator of all these artists. Um, And the more holistic the work can become, um, the the more that we go to that place that you're mentioning, where we don't notice the mechanics of the theatre being made, we yes. just can, you know, we can step into a, a sort of uh, a trance-like state as as the theatre just envelops us.
0: Yeah, yeah. amazing, amazing. I, I want st- to. I'm really interested to see what these pieces are. Einstein on the beach, as an image, I never thought I'd ever see. But I'm just getting <laughs> image now. Him and his full suit and everything. Uh, that's amazing, Andrew. Thank you so much. Today has just been so informative, and I've it's just been so nice just to just relearn everything from you again you know because and i speak on behalf of myself and and the rest of the group you know who were with you for those six seven weeks doing rabbit hole and uh everyone in that group they, we speak so highly of you and we are so very very honored and very touched that you would share your passion your desire and everything that you love about this business and your music and everything with us and your love for the play as well and i think I speak, and I think I speak on behalf of everyone when I say that when we look at a copy of Rabbit Hole in the future or indeed see it being, you know, being potentially staged in town, we will look at it and think of yourself and just love and just be just reminded of all the love and that you brought into the room and the safe space you created. And yeah, and I think just want to say just massive, not only thank you for today, but just thank you for just sharing your love and just being you and just being so passionate about everything that you do. And just, so thank you for that.
1: Thank you, Ollie. That's really kind. I've had a terrific time working with your group uh, of uh, MA actors, MFA actors, because it's been uh, such a responsive group of people and, uh, uh, and people who've really looked out for one another and cared for one another in the, the workspace. And I think that's uh, this, uh, the frame of fiction can't happen without the, the the professional base that it stands on. And and I think that's been uh, a wonderful thing for, for your group, uh, as you've gone through your training. So and thank you for today. Thank you for the invitation again. It's been great.
0: Oh my, my pleasure the pleasure was all mine, honestly. And yeah, and it's a real credit to yourself with, with your professionalism and again your love for everything. And uh and yeah and I think that is a lovely place to, to call it a day. So if you just hang on after I finish the recording, I'll say goodbye to you one-on-one. Uh but yeah guys thank you so much for listening. Thank you for watching. This has been the Uncensored critic podcast and I will be back very soon. Once again Andrew, thank you so much. Thank you, Ollie.